not make it to YouTube because there are too many creepers out there who will think it's phallic. <laughs> Alright, so I really have an awesome show for you today. We have another Democratic candidate dropping out. I think you know who it is already. Um, but I'm going to cover that story first. I'll play you the video that was released along with the announcement. And then, there's a lot of Bernie. There's a little bit of Biden. We got Trump going the extra mile for his wall in a way that's, of course, unconstitutional. And wait until I get to the fact check of Bernie Sanders, the so-called fact check of Bernie Sanders. Because, um, I mean, this is like, they're not even trying with their propaganda. And I'm not talking about the Republicans. I'm not talking about the corporate Democrats. I'm talking about the shitty media. So, yeah, that's a really, really... Uh, terrible story that I have to cover for you. And then we also have Tulsi Gabbard not making it into the next debates. But when I give you the specifics of how they're excluding her, it's going to drive you nuts because they really are just uh, bending the rules, creating the rules, then bending the rules and being as like secretive as possible in order to exclude her. So we'll talk about that and more. Hmm. One more bite of my banana, and then we're all set. Hold on. Yeah, bitch. All right, we're done. So which Democratic, which Democratic candidate dropped out? You about to find out, bitch. Again, you probably already know, but here we go. 
So Kirsten Gillibrand, a.k.a. Kristen Jellobrand, or Kirsten Jellobrand, um, has officially dropped out of the Democratic primary for president. Um, yeah, she didn't do too well. <laughs> she, she was one of the one percenters, if lucky. You know, I think most of the polls probably had her at zero percent, but every now and then she got lucky and got a little one percenter. And, um, yeah, she just never caught hold. Now, what's fascinating about Kirsten Gillibrand is that she's one of the people, along with Kamala earlier on, who decided, okay, I'm not an idiot. I see where all the energy in the party is, so I'm going to act like that's where I am, too. So she tried to be another one of these diet Bernie Sanders types. And um, it just didn't catch on. It didn't catch on, probably because people didn't believe her, uh, but also because it just didn't feel authentic. I mean, I'm not sure if you talk to your average voter that they would know the details of um, Kirsten Gillibrand's record, but it definitely just didn't feel authentic. It felt forced. And I'm telling you, man, we're in a new political era where really the more anti-establishment you are, the more anti-corruption you are, the more rough around the edges you are, uh, the better off you are. You know, there was a time back in the day when a candidate like Bernie Sanders legitimately wouldn't catch on. But in today's day and age, he's everybody's cup of tea for understandable reasons. You know, so um, let me play you Kirsten Gillibrand's dropout video here, and then we'll come back and, and talk a little bit more about her campaign. Hey, everyone. I wanted you to hear it from me first. But after more than eight incredible months and ending my presidential campaign, I know this isn't the result we wanted. We wanted to win this race. But it's important to know when it's not your time and to know how you can best serve your community and country. I believe I can best serve by helping to unite us to beat Donald Trump in 2020. During this campaign, I met some of the most inspiring, brave people all across this country, from Iowa to New Hampshire, from Georgia to Michigan. I will make sure your voice is heard. I promise. Thank you. Thank you. First and foremost, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you've done for this world. Thank you for volunteering, donating, and committing to our campaign. You're taking on every single day. Thank you for sharing your stories with me. Thank you for opening up your living rooms, breweries, and cycling studios. Thank you for inspiring me and joining me in fighting for our future. Is it strong? Take on greed and solve some of the biggest problems facing our children's future. 
and gun violence and global climate change. And of course, we had a lot of fun along the way. Our work is not done. And we have a clear mission in front of us. We have to defeat President Trump, split the Senate, and elect women up and down the ballot. I can't wait to keep speaking out and marching and fighting for you. Together, we will make people's lives better, no matter who you are, where you live, or who you love. And I know that together, we will win this fight. Thank you so much for everything, and I'll see you soon. I swear, the first candidate to drop out and not have goofy music behind them, I will love them, love them like a thousand times more. Because this is, this is a thing. This is what they do. And, and just for the record, all these people have these massively overpaid strategists and staffers that are part of the Democratic establishment, and that's their contribution. Their contribution is like, well, come on now. We've got to be serious candidates when we drop out. So make sure you put the music in the background. Have you done it? Have you put the music in the background? All right, we're good, guys. We're good. See, now we appear like serious people. Uh, it is no longer the 1980s and the 1990s. You can stop with the silliness. We hate it. <laughs> it's so annoying. So, all right, what's she most known for in this campaign? Well, the highlights um, in my mind are, first and foremost, she uh, she failed to attack melting brain Joe Biden and um, when everybody else was dunking on him. I remember this very clearly. We covered it. It was one of the debates, probably the last debate. Um, everybody else was kind of getting their jabs in. Every now and then somebody would throw a haymaker, and it was landing. It was landing because Joe Biden is a shell of his former self. Um, and then along comes Kirsten Gillibrand, and she tries to hit him. Uh, you know, basically painting him as, like, anti-woman and saying he thinks that women belong in the home or something. And in all seriousness, I, you guys know how tough I am on Joe Biden, but it really was kind of like an out-of-context thing, like mischaracterizing what his argument really is. And um, so it didn't land. It didn't land in, in the Democratic debate, and the thing that was so cringeworthy about it is she kept repeating it. Like, she said it, it didn't land, and then she she's like, Almost like, did you guys didn't hear me? Let me repeat my bad point. And then even melting brain Biden just and said, you know, something to the effect of, well, you used to love me and you used to ask me to, like, campaign for you, and I've helped you raise money for a variety of different women's issues, so I really don't know what changed, except that now you're running for president. And so now I'm like an evil guy. And the fact that this guy who's, like, totally politically impotent in today's day and age was able to effectively counteract her line of attack means her line of attack was just abysmal. It was just so bad. And then what Biden did, and you guys know, we always talk about policy comes first and foremost. That's the most important thing. He listed, like, all of his, the policies that he championed on women's rights, whether it's Lily Ledbetter um, or a variety of others that he brought up. Uh, he, I think he wrote the Violence Against Women Act, or at least in part wrote it. Like, he brought these up, and then Kirsten Gillibrand was like, yeah, but you hate women. <laughs> it just, it was no, everybody was like, come on, what are you doing? So um, failing to attack Biden is pretty sad. Uh, now, the other thing that uh, caught my eye about her, she was like the only candidate to really dive headfirst into, like, 
the actual social justice warriorisms. And so she repeatedly brought up like white privilege on the campaign trail, probably brought up intersectionality among many other things. And it's like, who exactly are you appealing to when you do that? Like, what do you, what do you think? You say these buzzwords and all of a sudden your approval rating is going to shoot up like 12 points or something? Because that didn't happen. If anything, she became like the butt of many jokes on Twitter. Um, and then also, she did a fundraiser with a big pharma executive as she's pretending like she's anti-corruption. That was a story that we covered because it was just, you know, this is the kind of politician that she is. And it, people need to know it, that when, as you're pretending and you're doing the Bernie Sanders tap dance, we see through you. She also caved on Medicare for All. And so the only thing I really liked about her campaign is that it is true that her rhetoric on many issues was more aligned with the Bernie wing. Um, now, again, you could say she's full of it, and I agree, but the rhetoric was more aligned with the Bernie wing, and that just further proves that, you know, the Bernie wing is becoming the obvious path um, and the default, duh, position in terms of what's best for a campaign. Now, she might be having second thoughts now and thinking like, oh, what if I ran a more centrist campaign? But I guarantee you, if she ran a more centrist campaign, she would have caught on even less than she did. She wouldn't have even hit 1% in any of the polls. That's for damn sure. How do I know that? Look at these goofballs like Michael Bennett, for example. Look at John Delaney. Oh, my God. John Delaney is so embarrassing. There's an a, a awesome John Delaney parody account on Twitter, and it get, consistently gets more likes and retweets than John Delaney does. So uh, she'd be even worse if she did that. Now, what's that, what will be fascinating to see is, okay, well, what are you going to do going forward? Because now you tried to build your brand as, like, I'm this big-time lefty. So let's say Bernie Sanders gets elected president. Let's say Bernie Sanders is pushing for his agenda, Medicare for all. Are you going to be one of the ones who's like, well, see, what had happened was I was going to support Medicare for all, but the sun was in my eyes, and I, th I think that maybe we, there's a better bill. There's maybe like a public option or something. So we'll see. Like, these are questions that can possibly be answered in the future. Um, but the cynical view is, of course, she's going to go right back to being massively centrist. To be fair to her, though, she does have a handful of votes that are, you know, that are solid. She actually voted against the Wall Street bailout, which was a rare thing at the time. Um, and the other thing is, I totally believe her, and I think she's, she, she means it when she fights for her, her signature issue, which is uh, paid family leave, which is great. She also has, um, you know, she does have, like, a, a pretty decent anti-corruption bill that she's been pushing for. So it's not like there are no bright spots. There are bright spots. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if we get a real-time lefty president, a big-time lefty president, is she going to do the right thing, and is she going to be one of the fighters on the correct side, or is she going to be one of the centrist holdouts, which, as we know, there's going to be a lot of them. Because what happened was a lot of these Democrats have signed up for Bernie's Medicare for All bill because they see the public sentiment, they see the pressure, but then when push came to shove, they immediately abandoned it, whether it's Kamala Harris, who's telling it to big donors behind closed doors, oh, I'm not comfortable with Bernie's plan, whether it's Tim Ryan, who argues against it vociferously, went on stage with Bernie Sanders, but he's a co-sponsor to the bill. So it's just a mess, and Bernie's going to need to know how to break out that whooping stick and get everybody in line. But there you have it. Kirsten Gillibrand officially drops out after an abysmal showing, and um, some of these candidates now, we're slowly beginning to see who wants to save face and who's just flat-out delusional, because a lot of these early dropout candidates, they're trying to save face a little bit and go, 
like almost act like, let me drop out and almost pretend like my presidential campaign didn't happen, and hopefully this doesn't harm my electability in a smaller market, like my respective state or a congressional district. But there are some people who just have, you know, no shame, and they're not embarrassed, and they're incredibly delusional, and they think like, no, 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 my day's coming, like John Delaney, for example. Um, so another one bites the dust, and there will be many more that bite the dust. Okay, next. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Joe Biden, and um, probably one of the scummiest things he's ever done. So Joe Biden released an ad on health care, and um, this, is, this is really, 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 really low. He's going to use the personal tragedies that he's experienced to try to gaslight the American people and redirect support away from Medicare for All, away from universal health care, and back towards incremental reform which, of course, is his hallmark. So let's take a look and then come back and cringe together. I was sworn into the United States Senate next to a hospital bed. My wife and daughter had been killed in a car crash. And lying in that bed were my two surviving little boys. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have the health care they needed immediately. Forty years later, one of those little boys, my son Bo, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given only months to live. I can't fathom what would have happened if the insurance companies had said for the last six months of his life, you're on your own. The fact of the matter is, health care is personal to me. Obamacare is personal to me. When I see the president try to tear it down and others propose to replace it and start over, that's personal to me, too. We got to build on what we did because every American deserves affordable health care. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. That line at the end is the absolute worst. He conflates President Trump trying to tear it down, with no replacement, of course, with people fighting for Medicare for all. And he said, uh, the people proposing to replace it and start over. That's terrible. That's, this is personal to me, and that's bad. So it's equally bad when you have President Trump destroying Obamacare through uh, different bills and different executive orders and destroying the, um, the individual mandate and making it so that in his just his first year as president, three, more, three million more people lost their health insurance. And as of today, it's seven million more people who've lost their health insurance. So this is what's happening under Trump. And Biden's saying, oh, my God, that's so bad. Agreed, that's terrible. But he also throws in there the people proposing to replace it and start over. That's personal to me. That's terrible. We shouldn't do that either. We need to build on Obamacare. Joe, 
build on Obamacare to what? What are we building on it towards? I agree we need to build on Obamacare, which is why the transition needs to be Obamacare, public option, Medicare for all. That's the logical progression. You have a phase-in period. In some bills, it goes as much as 10 years, which I don't agree with. I think Bernie's is four. There's another bill where it's two. But you have a phase-in. It goes from, you know, our current health care system to a public option, and then finally the end game is Medicare for all. Why? Because we know empirically that that's the correct answer because every other developed nation has one version or another of a single-payer health care system, and they kick our ass in every single relevant category. So everybody's covered. They pay less, and there are better health outcomes. And there's no such thing as a medical bankruptcy. No such thing as 30 to 45,000 people dying every year because they don't have access to basic health care. So this is insulting. It's insulting because they, they always have this conversation and this discussion as if we don't have the evidence and the data from every other developed country. They act like that's not allowed into the conversation. You're not allowed to talk about what we know is proven to be the right answer on health care because, I don't know, something, something, build on Obamacare, Trump bad, left equally bad. And he's using his dead son to make this case. By the way, note that there's no actual argument made. And they, he never tells you, Oh, when I, here's what I want to do when I build on Obamacare. Like, you would think that you would have to lay that out if you're going to make the case. Oh, I want to build on Obamacare. Great. How do you want to build on Obamacare? What exactly do you want to do? He never says that. He just says build on Obamacare. This vague, amorphous, build on Obamacare. Yay. So under his plan, and experts have crunched the numbers on this, there's still millions of people who wouldn't have health insurance. So that's your, that's your starting position in the negotiation? Your starting position is, all right, let's still keep millions of people without health insurance. What the hell is that? You want to talk about massively out of touch with the political times. You want to talk about embarrassing. And it honestly is shameful to invoke the memory of his dead son to then gaslight the country against Medicare for All. Because understand something. Medicare for All saves lives. I just told you. 30 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. The only way to fix that is with a Medicare for All system. Not a public option, not a vague, amorphous add-on to Obamacare or expansion of Obamacare. The only way to, to get that number to zero is with a Medicare for All system. The only way to totally get rid of medical bankruptcies, which is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in the U.S., is with a Medicare for All system. Again, this, this is not my opinion. This is not Kyle Kalinske speaking. This is the data speaking. So for him to invoke the memory of his dead son to gaslight the public against Medicare for all and act like, because here's the trick. He'll act like, oh, well, if you disagree with him, well, you're besmirching the great legacy of his son who passed on. How could you? How could you do such a thing, you monster? That's the trick. The trick is, I'm going to use my personal tragedy, which everybody sympathizes with him over, because no, nobody should have to go through that, obviously. But he's going to use that as a shield to deflect criticism and pretend like the right-wing approach to healthcare is equally bad as the left-wing approach to healthcare, which he, he, 
he tosses aside as replacing it and starting over. No, actually, that is building on Obamacare towards the end goal, which we know is the answer. So when, when he talks about a vague add-on to Obamacare, there is no logical end goal of Medicare for All. And for the record, he's gone with this lie now for a while, this idea that in order to get Medicare for All, there's this period where first we repeal Obamacare and then we replace it with Medicare for All. See, that's how they try to conflate it with the right-wing approach to healthcare, is because the right-wing approach, they oftentimes say repeal and replace. Now they want to replace it with something worse, but they say repeal and replace. So Biden tries to conflate that with Medicare for All and act like in order to get Medicare for All, first we have to repeal Obamacare and then we move towards Medicare for All. But nobody ever said that. Bernie helped write parts of uh, Obamacare. So, I mean, it's just, you're lying. It's a lie. It's a lie when he implies like, oh, they want to replace it and start over. Nobody's talking about starting over. Nobody's talking about getting rid of Obamacare and then going to Medicare for All. We're talking about expanding on Obamacare to get to Medicare for All. And that's the logical end goal, as opposed to handsy Uncle Joseph, who just wants a vague, amorphous expansion of Obamacare, and the details are terrible. And what we know of the details is that there are still millions of people who are uncovered. So there would be more deaths as a result of his health care plan than there would be under a Medicare for All system, in no uncertain terms, none whatsoever. So he's invoking the memory of his dead son to defend the status quo. That is, that's really low, man. That is really low. And that is clearly somebody who doesn't have an argument for his position. When that's what you go to, honestly, you know what this reminds me of a little bit? The old Rudy Giuliani pull out 9-11 whenever you're in a corner. They, they attack him on something, and then he's like, oh, yeah, well, I was mayor when 9-11 happened. And the whole idea is he's invoking 9-11. That's supposed to shut down the conversation. Ooh, I can't, I can't, I don't have a retort to that because, wow, 9-11, it was the worst thing ever invoking his dead son to try to gaslight and protect the status quo when it comes to health care. That's low, man. Joe, that's low. He knows it. He knows that's low. He knows it. If I were, okay, correct me if I'm wrong on this, guys, but I, I recall a story back when his son passed away. He had said to the press, no, I'm not going to run for president because my son, this is not something my son wants me to do. Now, again, maybe my memory's off, maybe my memory's wrong. I'm more than happy to be fact-checked on this. And by all means, post in the comment section if I am wrong and if you couldn't find anything on this. But I really recall a story where after his son passed, he's like, I'm not going to run for president because it's not what my son would want. And then now he's running for president. And actually, that was one of the first things that popped into my mind when he jumped into the race. Is I thought, wait, I thought he said that he, his dead son wouldn't want him to go through this, so he's not going to do it for the memory of his son. So in other words, he's just willing to invoke it for political reasons. And that's so gross. It's, if you're, you're going to invoke your, your son who, who tragically passed, okay, but invoke your son for something that really, really, really is fundamentally important and would really change the system in a positive direction. But he's invoking him for, like, gaslighting to protect the status quo. And if my memory serves me correctly, to he invoked his son to say, I'm not going to run for president. Now he's running for president. So the logical conclusion from that is, oh, so now it's okay to, like, 
besmirch your son and, and do the opposite of what his will was when you cited it previously is why you're not running? Oh, my goodness. Mainstream media coverage of this, too, has been abysmal. Like, there were – I saw – I forget where the headline was, but there was one headline that was like, watch Biden's heart-wrenching um, health care ad. Heart-wrenching. That's how you're going to describe that? Heart-wrenching. That he's using the memory of his dead son to gaslight against Medicare for All and act like the right and the left are equally crazy on health care. He's the only sane one. That's how you're going to describe that? Heart-wrenching. Shameful is more like it. Shameful is what this is. Okay. And we're off, bitch. Next. Okay. This one is, um, this speaks for itself. So this next video is um, absolutely stunning. It's actually two videos here. Biden has repeatedly, repeatedly forgotten Barack Obama's name on the campaign trail. Now, listen, if you're skeptical, if you're like, come on, Kyle, come on. Are you stretching the truth here? Are you twisting it? Are you, hey, judge for yourself, man. Judge for yourself. To me, this is crystal clear. I think to most of you, it's going to be crystal clear. But um, he has repeatedly forgotten Barack Obama's name. So what you're going to see here is one of these is an old, um, an older, I should say, maybe, maybe a month old CNN interview. We covered parts of it. I somehow missed this this part in the interview, but it popped back up on Twitter. Um, so one of these is a CNN interview from about a month ago, where he clearly messes it up, and then the other one is from a recent campaign event. This is tough. That's exactly what Rat Brock and I talked about in the beginning. That's exactly what Rat Brock and I talked about in the beginning. That's exactly what Rat Brock and I talked about in the beginning. Another country, and Anne has a significant portion of a cold Crimea. He's saying that there was President No, man, this is not okay. This is really not okay. President, awkward pause, my boss. Listen, go back and watch it. He forgot Barack Obama's name right there. He 100% forgot Barack Obama's name right there. No question. No question. And then the other one was, he said, President Raprock. I played it for you a couple times and slowed it down as well so you could see it's not even close. It's not, not even close to Barack. It's Rap Rock. Called him Rap Rock once and flat out forgot his name the second time. President, my boss. President, awkward pause, my boss. Come on, man. No, 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 no. He shouldn't be on the campaign trail. He really shouldn't. And now I'm not just saying this because he's somebody I disagree with politically. I'm saying this because it's obvious based on everything he said. Every day he has a massive gaffe 
there was the one that I played on Kyle and Corin for you guys, which his brain kept like sputtering and he he kept repeating the word friend. He was given a speech, I think it was in Iowa, and he just kept saying the word friend. So I have a friend, my friend, who's been my friend for a long time, and this friend, friend, and it's like, what's happening? It's his brain is not, it's not like flowing with, with time. It's like misperceiving time, and it's just like rewinding and sputtering out and going all over the place. This is also, in the same speech, it was the speech that he said that um, MLK was assassinated in the late 1970s. we got to stop pretending like this isn't a thing. This is definitely a thing. And it's actually, it's actually dangerous that the media keeps portraying him as the most electable. That's the default setting is, Oh, well, he's our, he's our best chance against Trump because he's the most electable. Have you seen what's been going on on the campaign trail? By the way, have you also seen his policy proposals and his agenda because that is not the agenda of somebody who has the best shot of beating Trump, because his agenda is very similar to Hillary Clinton's agenda, and we saw what happened with her. So it's just, they got to stop with the lazy narratives. They got to be real. They got to be honest. We have a problem here. He has a problem. And I genuinely take no pleasure in bringing this up. I don't want to, like, you know, like broadcast this guy's serious health issues, but it's. He's still in some polls leading for president, and I, I still think my perception of it is that a lot of the, that lead is just what I call default support. People who are relatively apolitical, not too involved in politics, registered Democrats, say, oh, who's running? Oh, Biden's running. He was the VP. Sure, I like Biden. Why not him? But the more people know, the more they're educated on what's going on, as I told you guys a thousand times, that's, that support is going to drop more and more and more. So... We got to educate people. We have to educate people. We have to show people. It's getting bad, dude. And just, just for the record, I'm not saying, like, this is unique to him because there's been countless examples of Trump with his brain kind of sputtering out and hit, being unable to say words or his, his brain just, like, skips it. And, and every now and then I get it. That's not a problem. I'm a public speaker. I know how difficult it is. But when it happens all the time, all the time, we have an issue here. So, it's tough to watch. It really is. But for the good of the country and for the good of himself and his family, Biden should really drop out and focus on himself. Okay. All right, now let's go to President Trump, who is, um, is getting really antsy about his wall. And this story broke in the wake of that. So President Trump is getting very antsy about the fact that he's not getting his wall. Um, and this is some pretty scary news that, that broke this week. Take a look. President Trump has told officials that he would pardon them if they're convicted of breaking any laws in the rush to complete several hundred miles of border wall along the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of the 2020 election, according to the Washington Post. The Post reports that the president has directed aides to aggressively push ahead with construction 
contracts and seizing private land while glossing over environmental rules, brushing off worries about contracting procedures in eminent domain, giving orders to, quote, take the land. Based on interviews the Post conducted with those involved with the project, Trump has told concerned members of his administration who suggested that some orders are illegal that he would pardon them if getting the barriers constructed quickly would require breaking laws. Quote, don't worry, I'll pardon you, President Trump reportedly told officials in meetings about the wall. Um, so there, when this story broke, the counterpoint from people within the Trump administration was that, oh, no, he was joking when he said that. He, did, he wasn't serious. I mean, I wasn't in the room, so I have no idea the tone he used when he said it. It's conceivably possible he was joking. But this also just doesn't sound out of character for Trump. You know, hey, just do it, and then I'll pardon you. This dude has a deep authoritarian instinct, and that's exactly what that would be. Like, yeah, whatever, just break the law, do whatever you want, do the thing I want, and then I'll pardon you because I have that power. So why not? So assuming this is real, man, that this is ugly. This is ugly. Because if you think about it, this is actually one of those instances where you have competing conservative goals. You know, one massive conservative goal is the wall. They love the wall. They love the idea of the wall. And so they'll stop at nothing to get it. But another cornerstone of um, conservative politics is this idea of, like, the sanctity of private property. And what he's saying is, I don't care. Just confiscate the private property of people on the border if it gets in the way and just build the wall right through their land. I don't give a fuck. So he's totally violating that principle of conservatism, this idea of, like, if it's your private property, big government cannot come and take it and do whatever they want with it. And he's saying, no, 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 big government is going to come take it and do whatever we want with it. So this is, uh, it's it's scary to see. Now, I want to show you, a good segment, this is from probably a year or two ago now, but this is actually a good CNN segment that gave a lot of specifics and details about what it would take to build a wall and why this is not a, like a cut and dry, simple thing to do. So let's take a look and, and then we'll come back and break it down. Part of a CNN analysis of 442 lawsuits filed by the U.S. government against American landowners. The property owners either fought to keep their land or tried to get more money than the federal government was offering under eminent domain. In most cases, a CNN analysis found those landowners lost the battle. And a decade later, 93 of the lawsuits are still in court. What did all those landowners get? A total of $78 million, the fair market value, to cover 654 miles of current border fence land the government took. But what happened 10 years ago in mostly desolate, dry ranch land will be nothing compared to what's about to take place. President Trump's recent executive order to expand the border wall could stretch in or highly populated areas. It will bisect even more farms, golf courses, resorts, and ranches, hundreds of miles of wall, and hundreds, if not thousands of landowners, will be forced to sell their property to the government. Former Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Ralph Basham says expect huge, prolonged legal battles. Particularly in the urban uh, areas, it's going to be uh, very uh, complicated. It's going to be um, 
it's not a popular idea. And uh, like I said, uh, individuals uh, are not happy when uh, you know they lose uh, part of their uh, property. The Riverbend Golf Club and Resort in Brownsville, Texas, is bracing for the worst. The fence is already here, on the right and the left. If the government decides to finish it, it will cut the resort in two. Seventy percent of our property would be on the south side of the wall. That would affect 15 of our 18 holes of the golf course and over 200 residences. Jeremy Barnard is the general manager and says residents here will fight for fair value of their property. I don't think anybody here is just going to hand over the property. Pat Bell is one of them. What happens here means everything to me. Like almost everyone CNN talked to along this border, Bell is a Trump <laughs> supporter. But she does not support a wolf, especially one that would essentially move her home to the Mexican side of it. She says fences and walls don't work, which is exactly why she plans to fight for her property. So absolutely I would go to the people that are in charge and and you, you hate to say I'd, I'd get a lawyer, but if it comes to that issue and you had to, you would. Bell, like thousands of other property owners along this border, nervously wait the final design, placement, and eventual legal notice that the U.S. government is coming to take away their land. Now, I know I'm tough on CNN a lot, and I should be because they usually do a terrible job, but, like, that's what they should be doing. You know, if you, when it comes to news, like, you want to learn stuff. You want to be educated about what's going on and learn, like, finer points and, and nuances and details of, of, of issues and see how complex they are and see what really goes into it and why it's not maybe as simple as some Trump supporters might think, where it's like, just build the wall, man. Just build it. What's the problem? Just build it. Well, now you know that even if you're somebody who's inclined to, to, to favor a wall, well, look at this. So the federal government would have to just seize private land, and then there's many instances. They just use one example here, but it's a golf course that's in you know, southern Texas right on the border where like 70% of the course would technically be on the other side of the wall. So all of a sudden, this idea that seems so simple is like, okay, well, what are you going to do? You're going to take every single resort along the border, golf course along the border, private property owner along the border, and you're just going to jack their land and throw them some cash and say, hey, now you're on your own? I mean, that just seems really dumb. I mean, apart from, you know, because many people make a moral argument and an ethical argument about having a wall in the first place, but putting aside the moral and ethical arguments, if you just look at it from almost like an efficiency standpoint or a common sense perspective, you're going to go, what, that, that, there's got to be a better way to try to do what they say they want, which is border security. It's like, no, let's just, you know, take all the private property over, you know, by the border and just jack it and then build the wall and then damn the consequences. Who gives a shit? And it is kind of ironic that a lot of these people are Trump supporters. and They're like, oh, yeah, I love Trump. Oh, shit, he's going to take my house and give me an amount that I think isn't fair for it, and he's going to ruin our entire community. And Wow. But I still support him. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. He wasn't far off when he said I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it and not lose any support. I think that's what he said. That's kind of true. And <laughs> This is a good example of it right here. But um, so stop and think about it, man. What Trump is thinking, according to this report, is 
build the wall, jack the land, and then don't worry, I'll pardon you. So you want to talk about what is fundamentally the opposite of how our system is supposed to work. It's supposed to be democratic. There's supposed to be checks and balances. There's supposed to be a process. There's supposed to be voting. He's doing what is just textbook authoritarianism. I'm just going to take the land. I'm going to build the wall. And then I'm going to pardon everybody who was involved in, in doing this obviously illegal activity. And, you know, they're going to shuffle money around that's allocated for federal agencies and just redirect that into building the wall. I mean, this is the point he's at now. Because, you know, one of his main things on the campaign trail when he ran was the wall. And he ain't going to get it through Congress, which he would need to do. So now he's just scrambling. He's like, I don't care. Just build it, and then I'll pardon you. Think about all the problems we really have, and then look at what he's focusing on. Like, there, we have so many real problems. We have, what, over 50,000 homeless veterans, probably around 500,000 homeless Americans. We have half of workers in this country making $30,000 a year or less. We have uh, an infrastructure that's absolutely crumbling. There was a time when we had uh, an infrastructure that was the envy of the world. Now our infrastructure is rated D+, according to the Society of Civil Engineers. So we have all these problems. Flint doesn't have clean water. Some, many other places don't have clean water. And they just, let's jack private property and build a wall. A wall that even for the people who say they agree with it, it's not going to have the impact that you think it's going to have. Humans are humans. They're going to find a way under the wall, over the wall, around the wall. Most of the people, undocumented immigrants who come in this country, fly in and then just stay overstay. We're going to build a wall. <laughs> oh, boy. They live in a fantasy world. And um, now when the president's not getting his way, he's thinking, yeah, it's just a flat-out authoritarianism. Why not? Let's try that. Okay. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take um, a break. You guys are going to love this one. So there's a new Monmouth University poll that uh, just came out, and we're beginning to see the movement that – I kind of predicted in the polls. So take a look here. The poll finds a virtual three-way tie among Sanders, Warren, and Biden in the presidential nomination preferences of registered Democrats and Democratic-leaning voters across the country. Compared to Monmouth's June poll, these results represent an increase in support for both Sanders, up from 14%, and Warren, up from 15%, and a significant drop for Biden, down from 32%. Wow. So in, in this poll, he's plummeting, absolutely tanking. Now, what did I tell you? I told you that he has the same problem Hillary Clinton had, which is the idea of Joe Biden is more appealing than the reality of Joe Biden. The idea of Hillary Clinton was more appealing than the reality of Hillary Clinton. So as soon as she went out there and she started campaigning and she started talking, her poll numbers went down. Joe Biden, same thing. As soon as he went out there and started talking, his poll numbers went down, and they're continuing to go down. So that's why Biden strategists are actually being a little bit clever, and they decided, 
um, we're going to try to hide him from cameras. We're going to do a limited visibility campaign or something. They called it something like that. And they're just hiding him from the cameras and trying to keep that, what I call, default lead that he has. Now, to be clear, in most polls, he still has a lead. Still has a lead. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit, okay? But you have to understand that once you start to see a trend, it very rarely is reversed. So I would be stunned if we didn't see more movement in this direction reflected in all the other polls. This is just the first of the trends that I kind of predicted. Now, here's where I was wrong, and I'm happy to say I was wrong. I thought that at the end we'd maybe be down to a Bernie versus Kamala situation because Kamala was faking the funk and acting like, oh, shit, there's a bee in here? How the fuck did a bee get in here? Did you guys see that on the camera? Oh, my God. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, shit. God damn it. This thing is going to land on me as I'm talking, isn't it? I can't just let the bee fly around in here. Well, talk about the show coming to a screeching halt for the most random reason of all time. How the fuck did that bee get in here? Guys, everything is, we're in like a shut down studio. There's no way into this bitch. Did it come through the vents? Okay. All right. Well, the only positive out of this is that this clip is definitely separately going on YouTube as long as you guys could see the bee that flew across the screen. <laughs> okay. So where was I? Um, Joe Biden, something, something. You know what? I, got, I actually got to take a break because I got to get this fucking thing out of here however I can. So stay, stay right there. We'll be, if it was a fly, it'd be fine, but it's a bee and that motherfucker could sting. So stay right there. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Rich. All right, we're back. So, update on the B situation. I do not see it anymore. But I didn't get it out. I didn't get it out. So it's somewhere in here. <laughs> and you have no idea how pissed I'm going to be if I'm in the middle of another rant and then the fucking thing goes right across the screen because that is not okay. I think I'm going to have to just act like a professional and pretend like it's not in here. Some shit that they do on like CNN or something. Because that might be the only way we're getting through the fucking show today. So what I did is the door to the studio is now open, okay? And it gives the bee the opportunity to exit stage left. Now, will it take that opportunity? I don't know. Has it already maybe taken that opportunity? Potentially. But the door's still open, so even if the bee left, the bee can come back. And now I feel I'm a little bit on edge because even though I don't see this motherfucker, I feel like I could hear him. <laughs> There's a decent chance that as I'm talking to you guys right now, you see the bee somewhere. And I just don't see him. But that was creepy, man. Let me ask you guys. What's the deal? Like, can they come through vents? And if they come through vents, maybe I have a bigger problem on my hand where the vent here has like a fucking beehive in it or something. But this is the first time this has ever happened. We've been doing this show full-time since, like, 2012-ish. That's a long time. That's, like, seven years. And this is the first time this has ever happened. Totally closed-off studio, ready to go, and then a bee just randomly flies everywhere. That's, like, some horror movie shit. That's like some, when I go to leave the studio, you open the door, and there's, like, a creepy clown standing there or something, right? Wasn't it, was it in It that the bee was part of the, I don't remember which horror movie that was, but. All right. I guess onward we go. I have no idea where I was because of that bee. <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought. I know I was talking about the poll with Biden, Warren, and Bernie, um, but I just, I don't know the specifics of where I was. Um, but bottom line is, once you start to see a trend in the polls, it very rarely flips and goes back in the other direction. And Biden has given zero signs that, you know, he has the capacity to, to reel it back in and start moving in the proper direction. So this could be a good sign. Now, I want to show you the average of polls um, according to Re Real Clear Politics. So this is all of the national polls. You have Biden at 28.9%, Bernie at 17.9%. Do I see this fucker again? I don't know. Okay, I just got to keep going. You have uh, Biden at 28.9%, Bernie at 17.1%, Warren at 16.5%, and then, you know, you go down there and you have, what is that, Harris at 2.6, uh, Buttigieg at 4.6, Yang 2.5, Booker 2.4, and then everybody else is, you know, you can't really see there. But, so that's the, 
that's the average of the national polls according to Real Clear Politics. Now, it is true that if something's an outlier, you are supposed to, like, kind of dismiss it if it's, like, there's one poll that says one thing and then all the others are saying something else, which is fair. However, the only counterpoint to that is what I was talking about before, which is this could be a trend now. So, in other words, we could – it could be the case that we're beginning to see the shift that I predicted all along. Now, what I'm happy about is I was wrong about the Kamala Harris thing, um, and Kamala – really kind of imploded, I think for two reasons. Number one, uh, Tulsi Gabbard just obliterated her on the debate stage and really exposed her um, to the point where even a lot of Kamala supporters were like, damn, Tulsi took her down. And then the other thing is she changed strategy. She was pretending to be like Bernie Sanders, and then, you know, she was creeping her way slowly up the polls, but then as soon as she stopped pretending to be Bernie Sanders and she started telling you know, wealthy donors behind closed doors that she's not comfortable with Medicare for all, and she started reversing and re- released her own plan and is a more centristy, watered-down version of what she was pretending to be, all of a sudden she reversed and started going in the other direction. So I'm happy to say that at least at this point, my prediction on Kamala, it being like Bernie and Kamala towards the end, that hasn't materialized. It looked like it was beginning to materialize until a lot of people were giving me credit because she started moving up in the polls, but then she stalled. And now she's moving in the other direction. But who's kind of taking her place? Strangely enough, Elizabeth Warren, which is honestly, it's not terrible because let's say hypothetically came down to Bernie versus Warren in the end. That's so much better than Bernie versus Kamala because Elizabeth Warren's definitely better than Kamala. So you'd almost prefer that it'd be more like that than, than having Kamala with a real legitimate shot. Um, but now having said that, don't get it twisted, Elizabeth Warren is not Bernie Sanders. She's like Bernie Sanders light. She's diet Bernie Sanders. She's like everything he's for except make it a little bit shittier, and that's me. And she hasn't been strong on Medicare for all. She hasn't been strong on foreign policy. Um, And there was a story that just broke this week about how she's been meeting with the Democratic establishment and kind of letting them know, like, wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm not, like, I'm kind of with you a little bit. So the fact that she's willing to meet with the Democratic establishment, the fact that she's trying to assuage fears about her in the Democratic establishment, that's not a good sign. You want somebody to take them on and, and let them know, like, no, 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 things are going to change, and that's Bernie Sanders. Now, the most important part of this poll is, um, and just a final thing on the specifics, you have Biden at uh, just plus four and Biden at plus seven in an Economist and an Emerson poll, respectively. So, again, that trend, you're beginning to see that trend, the trend of, like, okay, he was leading by, like, over 10 points, and now it's dropping, dropping, dropping. One poll, now he's basically tied with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, and then other polls, he's dropped to just plus four and plus seven. So that trend is starting to come. Now, what Monmouth did in reaction to this is embarrassing. So the guy who basically is in charge of the poll released a statement, and in the statement, he basically was saying, like, okay, guys, We hear all the chatter about the poll, and we just want to let you know this is the way it works. We're sticking by our methodology, but yes, if something's an outlier, as a general rule, you want to dismiss the outlier and go with what the average says and what the other polls are saying, yada, yada, yada. The reason Monmouth released this poll is because the establishment melted down over this poll. They were like, there's no way Bernie Sanders is, is, you know, tied for first. There's no way Biden's lit that much. And so you had... You know, on CNN, Jeffrey Tubin came out and called it like a rinky-dink poll or something along those lines. And you had 
um, other hosts saying, no, 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 Biden's definitely still leading. It's definitely still Biden. So I don't know what you're talking about. Don't even you pay no mind to this in any in at all. Nate Silver went into you know hardcore uh, punditry mode, even though he pretends to be data boy and all about the numbers. He was like, this is what the Bernie leading crazy. <laughs> so what you see is all the fake, very serious people are like, we don't like the results of this poll, so we're going to dismiss it. Now, I want you to compare and contrast that with us. What do I do? I've told you that Biden's had a lead in the polls. I also tell you that my perception of it and my opinion is, I think it's probably what I call default support. That he just has the support because it's apolitical people or people very don't very closely follow politics. Go, oh, yeah, I get Biden. I liked him when it was Obama and Biden, whatever. So that's my take on it. But I have admitted, yes, Biden is leading in the polls. Still in the average, he's still leading in the average. I'm admitting all of that to you. What do they do? When a poll comes out and it shows Bernie's tied for the lead, they immediately dismiss it, downplay it, and forget it to the point where the polling company has to release a statement saying, whoa, 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 just relax, everybody, because they were coming after Monmouth. Now, have you seen the, them release a statement whenever Biden leading in the polls? No. Why? Because the establishment's like, yes, this is the order of things that I'm comfortable with and that I'm okay with. So, yes, Joe Biden is leading in the polls. But when it's Bernie and when it's Elizabeth Warren who are tied at the top, they're like, oh, Oh, no, this can't be right. Why can't it be right? Why can't it be right? Because <laughs> well, what, you think it's written in the laws of nature that Biden has to be number one? I got news for you. Back in the 2008 election on the Republican side, you know who was the front runner for a long time? Rudy Giuliani. And then he finished with, like, none of the vote. He was towards the bottom. So it's just, oh, God damn it, man. And we're just beginning to see this. The anti-Bernie stuff in the media, we're just getting started. Because with Biden now flipping and Bernie being one of the people at the top, they're going to put that propaganda and that fear-mongering and, and all of their smear tactics into overdrive. Because they will not stand for this guy being the likely nominee. They will not stand for it. They're going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at him. So get ready. Get ready. And we have a story in a little bit that really breaks that down in detail of them doing exactly this. But now, you know, the trends, we're beginning to see a lot of the trends that I predicted, um, which is Biden massively flipping. I'm happy to say that one of my predictions, at least at this point, is nowhere near true, which is Kamala, even though she was bumped up at the beginning, now she's falling down, I think, because of her change of strategy and Tulsi obliterating her. Um, but, yeah, Warren is replacing Kamala in that role, which is not the worst thing in the world. So very fascinated to see what happens moving forward. Okay, next. All right, here's the story of where they're putting the fear-mongering into overdrive. And, of course, I missed my stop when it came to the whatchamacallits, the graphics. Oh, no, I didn't. I just had the wrong one. 
Do I not have? Oh, I gotta add. I had the wrong graphic, y'all. Give me a second here. Add photos. Let's go with that one. Bernie Sanders. Add. Alright, here we go. Let's move this back all the way over here. Where it belongs. Preview. Go. Love it when I have to fix shit on air. Very weird show today between me being assaulted by a bee and uh, the graphics not being in order. We got a lot of a lot of craziness going on around us, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of craziness. All right, here we go. So America, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so America's dad, Bernard Sanders, uh, tweeted something the other day uh, that was true because that's what he does. He says things that are true, and he tries to fix stuff. It's a good guy. Like the guy. So um, he said that 500,000 Americans will go bankrupt for medical bills. That's what he tweeted. Now, this is um, not controversial. This is accurate. And it's based off of a study published in the American Journal of Public Health. Sounds pretty legit, doesn't it? The American Journal of Public Health. <laughs> they just, again, Bernie just says things that are true. He just, he's trying to fix problems, and he, he, he lets you know what the problem is, and then he tells you how he wants to fix it. Standard Bernie Sanders. So, remember like a week ago or two weeks ago when Bernie was on the campaign trail, and he said, like, the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos doesn't like him because Bernie's going to go after Jeff Bezos. He proposed the Stop Bezos Act, you know, and he fought to get Amazon workers a living wage, and he wants to raise, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos' taxes. He has over $100 billion. And Bernie said, yeah, I know he doesn't like me. And what a surprise, the Washington Post, um, which he's in owner of, right, isn't, at least holds a large stake in it. Um, unsurprisingly, the Washington Post always goes after Bernie Sanders. And the media melted down and act like, oh, my God, he's acting like Donald Trump and saying things are fake news. And he's so unhinged and he's so crazy. <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Crazy old man. <laughs> well, fast forward to today, to this week, and what did the Washington Post do when they saw that tweet of Bernie Sanders where he says 500,000 Americans will go bankrupt for medical bills? Look, Sanders' flawed statistic, 500,000 medical bankruptcies a year. Sanders' flawed statistic, 500,000 medical bankruptcies a year. Flawed? Really? How'd you come to that conclusion? Well, um, what they do is they minutia troll you to death. And they say, well, you know, technically, when a bankruptcy happens, bro, you gotta, like, look at all the factors. And, like, all the factors are like, hey, man, maybe the dude was late on his car payment. Maybe he's late on his mortgage. Maybe he's also late on his medical bills. But you can't say that there's 500,000 medical bankruptcies each year because, you know, maybe there were, like, other factors and stuff, bro. Now, you want to know why that's bullshit? Because the author of the study that was published in the American Journal of Public Health came out and said, no, 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 Bernie Sanders is 100% correct. Um, and when you ask people... It's over 500,000 that say that's the bulk of the problem for their bankruptcies. So that's like the main thing. That's the problem. 
But that's not good enough for Washington Post. They're like, bro, you know, what if you, what if like, even though 80% of your debt is medical debt, what if the other 20% is something else? Can you really technically call that a medical bankruptcy, bro? Yeah, yeah, we can. <laughs> Crazy Bernie, he's wrong. Here's the cherry on top for this story. And credit to David Dole of the Rational National for pointing this out. In an article published on February 8th, the Washington Post cited this statistic. They said, the study published in the American Journal of Public Health found uh, before the ACA went into effect, 65.5% of people in debt cited medical concerns contributing to bankruptcy, compared with 67.5% in three years after the health care law was implemented. It found 530,000 families deal with bankruptcies related to illness or medical bills. So here's the grand irony of what's going on here. There's a very good chance that Bernie Sanders got this statistic from the Washington Post's article, and then he does a tweet based off of the Washington Post article citing this study, and then Washington Post goes, we rate that false, bro. They gave him three Pinocchios out of four. He could have got the story from you. Are you rating yourself three Pinocchios? What do you... Oh, my God, the, the media bias is so obvious and abysmal. I mean, this is, this is embarrassing, man. This is embarrassing. This is what they do. They nuance troll him to death. He could say the most obvious stuff, and they go, well, actually, bro, they well actually him to death. They have a bias. Let me be clear. They have a bias. And that's a beeping sound. They do not want Bernie Sanders. They do not want the populist left. They do not want real anti-establishment, anti-corruption politicians to gain power. They don't want it. They don't want it because they're pretty comfortable with the status quo. Again, it's not a conspiracy, but... Jeff Bezos and the billionaire class, and all of corporate media, they're not hiring guys like me. They're, they're, there's a, a filtration process where you weed out the people who aren't going to play ball. You weed out the people who are a little bit too kooky, a little bit too on the fringes. And you go with the safe choices. You go with the Don Lemons and the Wolf Blitzers. You go with the shitty writers that they have at the Washington Post. No offense to um, Jeff Stein, who I think is wonderful. He's the exception. Um, this is what they do. They go with people who they know are going to more or less defend the status quo, and to the extent they want change, it's just little tweaks. Now, don't get me wrong, in, in corporate media, most of the time they're perfectly fine and lovely on social issues. They don't hate gay people, they don't hate minorities, and that's great. I'm happy about that. But when it comes to fundamental systemic reform and economic change and structural change, they will gaslight you to death and defend a neoliberal centrist system. How dare you go beyond tweaks around the edges? How dare you want serious, substantive reform and change? So Bernie Sanders, they treat Bernie Sanders 
like a buffoon and like a crazy person, even though Bernie Sanders is only trying to make the U.S. a thriving social democracy, only trying to take the Democratic Party back to its FDR roots. But he's crazy, and he's insane to these people. Why? Because they're moneyed interests. They've done fantastically well in the current system. So they're going to gaslight you into thinking, well, we shouldn't change the current system. And so fact-checking here, in this instance, is deeply ideological. They're, they're nuanced trolling and minutiae trolling Bernie to try to undercut him and undermine him, even though he's 100% correct on the substance. So, and again, here's the difference between us and them. I tell you what my opinion is. I let you know what my philosophy is. We've gone into detail about my philosophy. I say, you know, I'm more or less a, a believer in social democracy, um, you know, I have certain aspects that are further left in my ideology, like I like the idea of worker-owned co-ops. I refer to myself as populist left or libertarian left. I tell you exactly where I'm coming from. They don't on CNN. They don't in corporate media. They don't in the Washington Post. They play hide the ball. They're, they pretend like, us, bro? We're totally above the fray. We have, like, no opinion about anything at all. We're just giving you the facts. It's like the the incredibly cringeworthy CNN ad campaign of facts first. See, this is an apple. This isn't an orange, bro. This is an apple. We're so smart, we're telling you it's an apple. We're telling you the truth, it's an apple. It's an apple. Facts first. Facts first. Incredibly smug. So they act like we're just all about the data and the numbers and the statistics and objective truth, and then they give you a deeply ideological worldview. They're dishonest. I'm honest. I'll tell you the truth and the numbers, but then also give you my take on it. But you know it's my take, and you know it's I have a perspective. But I'm telling you that perspective. They're pretending they don't even have a perspective. There's no way you could do this fact check as you did it unless you have a perspective. And that perspective is gaslight to try to protect the status quo when it comes to health care. And that's what they're doing. Do you think this is bad? It's going to get worse, I'm telling you, because now we saw the first polls where with Biden in the race, Bernie is now tied at the top. The more polls come out that show Bernie at the top, they will, it will become desperate, it will become insanely hyperbolic, and it will be vicious against Bernie. They will treat Bernie worse than they treat Trump if they're not already doing it. Remember in 2016, 16 negative articles against Bernie in like a 16-hour period? Just get ready, bro. Get ready. It's only going to get worse from here. We got a bunch more of America's dad, Bernard Sanders. Crystal Ball did a great interview with him, so we're going to cover that. So our friend Crystal Ball on Hill TV uh, had an interview with Bernie Sanders, and um, it was great. So here's a clip of him weighing in on what led to the rise of charlatans like Trump and Bolsonaro. So in other words, what led to the rise of what many call the populist right, what I would call the fake populist right. Well, let's uh, take a listen to his answer here. Um, you mentioned Bolsonaro and how he's a, a Trump acolyte, and we see the rise of these far-right figures. They're 
Israel, you've made the, the comparison, uh, a lot of sort of far-right authoritarian leaders around the world. Why do you think that we're seeing that right now? I'll tell you why I think so. I'm 100% sure. You know, but, uh, this is what I think. I think you've got a global economy which has undergone a major transformation over the last many, many decades. All over the world, you're seeing rural communities, agricultural communities in trouble, family farmers going out of business in the United States, in Vermont, all over the world. Uh, you're seeing people moving to cities. You're seeing gaps, significant gaps in educational levels, uh, gaps in the utilization of technology. So I think what you're seeing in America, rural America, where actually life expectancy is going down, going down, is a lot of people have been left behind. They're going, you know, the jobs they have don't pay them a living wage. They're worried that their kids uh, can't get an education, can't afford health care. Many of people in rural America are turning to drugs, uh, to alcohol, to suicide. Even. Uh, so I think you've got a whole lot of people who are falling behind, and you have political leaders who have ignored that pain and that reality. Uh, the fact that people are working for low wages, they're spending half their income in housing, they don't have any health care, they don't have any educational opportunities. And a lot of people around this country, and this is why I think Trump won, is people look at the Democratic establishment and they're saying, hey, I'm here. Do you know that I'm making 10 bucks an hour and I can't make it? Do you know that I'm paying a whole lot for rent that I can't afford, that I can't afford childcare? Anybody worried about me? Anybody care about me? Anybody know that I exist? And I think for a lot of those folks, you know, Trump comes along, I don't think people like Trump, I don't think they believe him, but he was different. So I think, and that's true to a large degree around the world, a whole lot of people feel left behind. Rich are getting richer. We have massive, not only in this country, we have massive income and wealth inequality worse than any time since the 1920s. That's true all over the world. So a lot of people left behind, and they're looking, unfortunately, to authoritarian leaders who they believe can right the wrongs that they are suffering. So that is a very, very thoughtful answer from Bernie Sanders. And that's not the kind of answer you'd get from other Democratic candidates, bar maybe Tulsi. Tulsi might give a similar answer. But what he's saying is, and actually, let me rewind, what the other Democratic candidates would say is what? Why did, they would be asked, why did Trump win? And then they would say something along the lines of, well, he's really bad and his supporters are really bad. So he won because there's a lot of bad people who support bad things. Wow, what a deep and thoughtful answer. Now, are there some people who are what I call the TFGs, too far gone? Yes, they are. And we're more than happy to call them out at every turn. David Duke or Richard Spencer didn't support Donald Trump because they thought, oh, he's going to save our jobs. David Duke and Richard Spencer supported Donald Trump because Donald Trump said in no uncertain terms that the Mexicans coming here, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people, uh, you know, because he said he wants a total and complete uh, shutdown of Muslims coming to the country. They voted for him because of the bigoted shit. So those people exist. But there are many people who are former two times Obama voters who flipped and voted for Trump. How do you explain that? Are those people just bigots, irredeemable deplorables who we should write off? No, they're not. What Bernie's saying is if you offer people something, you can win elections. You know, and the way I, I phrase it is get the people who are gettable. Hold your base. The Democratic Party needs to serve their base and hold their base. That's incredibly important. But also get new voters, get independents, and get the people who are gettable, who are either moderates or even self-described conservatives, 
but who are not insane. And there are people like that. Again, the former two times Obama voter who flipped and voted for Trump, they're not crazy. They're not bigoted. I'm not writing them off. These are people who actually have a, you know, an analysis of the political scene where they're looking for who's most likely to break up the status quo because the status quo is royally screwing them. And that's what Bernie's talking about here. He's talking about how economic globalization has led to the decline uh, in wages, in middle-class income, and it's rendered people worse off. And so they're turning to what I call the fake populist right because they didn't see an option on the populist left. Because last time we had Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton is she's a fundamental representation of the status quo. She's not populist at all. She's an elitist who's nominally on the left. Whereas with Donald Trump, he was a fake populist on the right. Weird how he's the Republican candidate, but he spoke more about NAFTA, TPP, trade deals destroying factory towns on the campaign trail than she ever did. She tepidly came out against it after having endorsed it and calling it the gold standard of trade deals. She tepidly came out against it, thanks to Bernie Sanders. If he didn't push her there, she wouldn't have went there at all. Um, but Trump outflanked her on that issue and many other issues involving jobs and the economy and wages. And so that's a really important reason as to why he won. Let's be serious, guys. The, the deciding factor in the election is the Rust Belt. You might not like that system. I would push for a popular vote system, but we don't have that. We have the Electoral College. So it came down to the Rust Belt. What issues were most important to the people in the Rust Belt? Well, we know how many dilapidated factory towns are over there that got destroyed because of NAFTA and permanent normal trade relations with China, and then the Democratic president was trying to shove another trade deal, TPP, down their throats. So, you know, you can make an argument that that was the main issue, because he only won because of like 70,000 votes in the Rust Belt. You, get, you flip those 70,000 votes, and it goes in the other direction. So you can make an argument that, yes, wages and trade were, were like the most important issue in the last election. Now, again, Trump is massively hypocritical, and he flip-flops like crazy. There was a time he said on the campaign trail, wages are too high, because there were uh, minimum wage protesters outside of the venue where they were having the debate. So he's flipped on it. He's a hypocrite. But the fact that he kept going to the Rust Belt and hammering home those themes that pretending to be a populist, that's a very important reason as to why he won. That's not to downplay the racism and the bigotry and the too far gone. They certainly exist. And I'm not, I'm not arguing for you to try to get the too far gone. I'm arguing for you to get who's gettable. And that's what Bernie Sanders is doing here. And it's a poignant analysis to not just pawn off like everything about Trumpism, everything about Bolsonaro, everything about the rise of this fake populist right. It's just bigotry. It's just xenophobia. And that's the end of the conversation. No, that definitely plays a part in it. And they definitely do divide and conquer and try to separate us along racial lines and religious lines and ethnic lines and whatnot. Um, that's certainly a part of it where you get white middle class folks or lower middle class folks to blame poor black and brown people for their problems. Um, that plays a big role. It's the old establishment trick. But that's not the end of the conversation. That's part of the conversation. And Bernie's alluding to the fact here that when, you, when Democrats give people something to care about, something to vote about, uh, about, some hope, a very clear policy agenda, very likely that we'll win. And that's what he's offering. He's offering a real populism a real anti-corruption politics, a real anti-establishment politics. So if you give people the choice between the fake populist right and the elitist left, they're going to go with the fake populist right. 
But if you give people a choice between the fake populist right and the real populist left, they're going to real populist left, which is why I've said time and time again, if it's Bernie versus Trump, it's over. Bernie wins in a landslide. You don't even need to have the election. They're going to, and they should, but I'm not worried in the slightest. I would be worried if it's anybody who has some establishment flavors in their politics versus Trump, but not if it's Bernie. So very thoughtful, very intelligent answer here from Bernie Sanders, and I love to see it. All right, now we are going to go to another part of this interview, which was really good, really important, really special. Um, You're going to eat these words, and I mean that in a positive way. America's dad, Bernard Sanders, didn't hold back his criticism of the DNC here when he was asked about it by Crystal Ball on Hill TV. So let's take a look. Um, no secret that you've been critical of the Democratic establishment. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, if you do become the nominee, do you believe that they'll support you? Well, I don't want to speculate. I, I certainly uh, understand that not everybody in the Democratic establishment, I think the third-way folks are referred to me as an existential threat to the Democratic Party. I think that was the term that they used. So. Are you? In some ways, I am. And that is that I want to transform the Democratic Party. We're sitting right now in Kentucky, right? This is a very poor state. This is a state which has a whole lot of folks who are working for low wages. Uh, You have a senator who wants to do away with the Affordable Care Act. They would throw tens and tens of thousands of people in this state off the health care they have. They have an educational crisis. And yet, you've got two right-wing Republican senators, most of the members in the House, Republic, why is that? Why is that? And I think it's because the Democratic Party has lost the vision that it once had on the FDR, even maybe on the Harry Truman, about being the party of the working class in this country, being the party that says to the billionaire class, you know what? You can't have it all. Love it. He was like, yeah, maybe I am an existential threat to the Democratic Party. And I like at the beginning when uh, she she said, "You're, uh, you know, it's no secret you've been critical of the Democratic establishment." And he was like, "Have I?" <laughs> Get him, Father Bernie. Father sounds too religious. Get him, Dad Bernie. Daddy, Daddy Bernie sounds a little too creepy. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that's a little too weird. America's Dad Bernie Sanders. There you go. We'll go back to the original. Um, listen. What he wants to do is make the Democratic Party Democratic again. That's what he wants to do. So even though he is an existential threat to the Democratic establishment, the reality of the situation is the current Democratic establishment was an existential threat to a functioning and popular Democratic Party. You see what I'm saying? So... Bernie's just saying, hey, let's go back to our roots, at at, at least on economic issues. Hey, let's go back to uh, advocating and fighting for social democracy. You know, that's FDR-style politics, you know, with the the New Deal, for example. That's why Bernie comes along. He's a fighter for the Green New Deal. He's a fighter for a massive infrastructure project. Uh, He's a fighter for 
construction jobs, energy jobs, um, renewable technology jobs. He's, he wants to upgrade our infrastructure. He wants to do a living wage. He wants to do Medicare for all. He wants to do free college. He wants to eliminate student loan debt. He wants to tax Wall Street. All he's doing is taking that FDR legacy and running with it. That's it. This is not extreme. This is not radical. This is basically representing the will of the American people, because if you look at the polls, people agree with virtually his entire agenda. So even though he's an existential threat to the Democratic establishment, he's doing so by actually representing the popular will of the people, which is why he's so popular and which is why people love him. So that, I feel like that's the most poignant argument that you can make, which gives people that light bulb moment. And you saw it a lot in that Joe Rogan podcast with Bernie Sanders, is when Bernie explains what he's actually about, everybody goes, oh my goodness, wait a second, I thought this guy was crazy. Mainstream media has been telling me that this guy's out of his mind. He, everything he's fighting for is immensely popular. This all sounds like common sense. It all sounds immensely popular. Let's take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry, for example, and giving specifics about how they're ripping us off, so on and so forth. It's, he actually is the centrist. He actually is the moderate. He's in the center of mainstream American opinion. He's right smack dab in the middle of it. So that's the thing that people need to understand and wrap their minds around is that in Washington, D.C., this guy whose view is insanely far left is actually representing the will of the American people. And um, all this talk about being a, you know, an existential threat to the Democratic establishment, that's basically him saying, I'm not interested in you know, doing the bidding of the pharmaceutical companies and the for-profit health insurance companies and Wall Street and the military-industrial complex. I'm not interested in the corruption that has a stranglehold on both parties in Washington, D.C. I'm interested in fundamentally changing that system to make it work better and work for the people. So I absolutely love that. If you can hammer home that message that, hold on now, I'm the real moderate because I'm right in the middle of mainstream American opinion, I'm the real centrist, and all I'm trying to do is get us back to our FDR roots, how are you going to lose with that message? How are you going to lose with that message? Just so everybody knows. FDR kept getting elected. The right was like, oh, my God, we need to come up with term limits because Democrats are never going to lose ever again because they're so popular because they're doing things that are good for the people. We need term limits. And somehow in mainstream media now, the idea is, oh, you can't go in the FDR direction. You can't go in the Bernie Sanders direction because that's, that's not popular. You got to, like, you know, be centrist and stuff, bro. Be centrist and stuff. It's not like we have any recent history of like Hillary Clinton or something running as a centrist and losing, bro. Not like she lost, bro. Yes, she did. <laughs> so, uh, a great answer from Bernie, and great question too from Crystal Ball there. And um, I want to see more of this. Let this man speak freely and lay out his vision, and uh, people will be attracted to it like a bug attracted to a bug light. Okay. 
Let's talk about the issue of drugs. I unfortunately have to disagree with America's dad here for a second. So here's a rare area where I disagree with America's dad, Bernie Sanders. Um, Let me show you what he said here about the issue of uh, drug decriminalization in his interview with Crystal Ball on Hill TV. But I agree with those folks who are moving in the direction of a decriminalizing at least marijuana right now. Uh, What about hard drugs, though? I mean, that's the portable model. I'm not there yet. I mean, I just... Why not? Because heroin is a killer. You want to push heroin? Uh, Sorry, I'm not too tolerant to that. But it worked in Portugal. There's an argument from a principled perspective about, hey, if you're not hurting anybody else, why shouldn't you be allowed to do it? Even if it's bad for you, you have the choice to do what's bad for you. There's a basic freedom argument there and a liberty argument there. But putting that one aside... It's just worked in Portugal. They have the best outcomes on this stuff. They actually have fewer people who are addicted, and they decriminalize drugs. So, and somebody made an interesting point. They told me, you know that the views are going to be retrograde when somebody says, I'm not there yet. So, in other words, that's like them saying, like, I know where I'm supposed to be, but I'm not there yet. So it's not like a hard disagree. It's like, mm, that's probably the right answer, but I can't bring myself to that position yet for whatever reason. So, and just so you know, we're not even talking about legalizing all drugs in the context of this clip. We're talking about he wants to legalize recreational marijuana, but he stopped short of saying decriminalize all drugs, to which I respond, We're not even talking about legalization. You can't even agree to decriminalization. But very simply put, this is not a criminal issue. If you admit that, hey, we're talking about addiction here and a mental health issue, then how can you then also say at the same time, oh, keep it a criminal issue? No, that's insane. You should decriminalize all drugs, at least decriminalize all drugs, at the very least. And just so Bernie knows, prohibition when it comes to substances, flat out has not worked. So what happens when you, when you ban something is you push it underground to the black market, and then there's more crime associated with the, pro- with the product as a result of it being on the black market. Why? Because gangsters and criminals have a monopoly, and they make all the money, and they're the ones who are involved in selling the product, So if there's some sort of dispute on the streets, you solve it with guns. You solve it with guns and violence. If this stuff is decriminalized, if this stuff is legalized, you solve it going to court wearing suits and ties. So we have the example of alcohol. We know what happened with alcohol. When there was alcohol prohibition, we had a giant spike in organized crime, a giant spike in violent crime, because you gave a monopoly to criminal organizations and gangsters. And so they got incredibly powerful. The mafia was massively powerful during the Prohibition era because they made all the money from selling the alcohol. And also, there's a regulation issue, which is when the alcohol was made underground, they used to cut it 
with incredibly dangerous substances, and then every now and then people would just die from drinking a bad batch of alcohol because they were making it in bathtubs with terrible stuff. So we know prohibition doesn't work. So you should obviously be against prohibition and at the very least be in favor of decriminalizing these substances. If you admit that, hey, it's an addiction issue, it's a mental health issue, then you cannot say also, well, keep it, keep it criminalized. Now, there's later on in the clip, you didn't see it there, he goes on to talk about, um, you know, how I think he's sympathetic to that point when it comes to the the user, but not the seller, like he does, the seller he has no, you know, sympathy for or whatever. Well, listen, then how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go in this conversation? Because honestly, oftentimes it comes back to people growing up in very impoverished communities, having really zero real options, shitty schools that are massively underfunded, no job opportunities, um, and they're that path is the only path available to try to maybe get out of that situation and people end up taking it. So we have to change, you know, the culture around it, the economic circumstances around it, the educational opportunities, but also, yes, I would argue you have to decriminalize at the very least you have to decriminalize. So I disagree with Bernie on this, by the way, this is the second time I've heard him say this recently on the Joe Rogan podcast. I think Joe Rogan also asked him about potentially decriminalizing all drugs or going further than marijuana, and he stopped short again, and he said the same thing he said here to Crystal Ball. But, yeah, I just, this, I just flat out disagree with it. We have the model of Portugal, which has been proven to work, and it's fantastically well. Um, and we have the, the opposite example of what happens with prohibition, and we know it's a disaster. We, ha- we know what happens now with the drug war because we're going through it right now with all the problems associated with the drug war and how there were cartels and then they splintered and now they're mega cartels and there's so much violence and hundreds of thousands of deaths associated with the prohibition of it. So you can't do prohibition. At the very least, you have to decriminalize these substances. The real conversation should be about legalizing. Now, I get it. If Bernie wants to say to me, come on, man, there's some substances that just flat out shouldn't be legal. Yeah, if you're talking about crocodile, if you're talking about crystal meth, crocodile, the life expectancy once you start is like a year and your skin rots off and melts off your body and crystal meth is, you know, is terrible in a variety of ways and your teeth, teeth fall out of your face and you age at like quadruple the rate. So you don't have to sell me on the idea of many substances being bad. But should there be legal, tax, and regulated versions of all different kinds of potential highs, whether it's in uppy high and whether it's a downy high, whether it's whatever it might be. Yes, there should be that option available on the marketplace because I believe in freedom and I also believe people are going to weasel their way around anyway and you want them to have relatively safe options as opposed to the dangerous options which are only available on the black market and the worst versions which are only available on the black market. Listen, man, if you can go buy like three giant bottles of whiskey and drink yourself to death at 7 a.m. in the morning if you choose, don't tell me it's a crazy idea to have legal taxed and regulated versions of, of all these different substances because that is a matter of freedom. That is a matter of personal choice. I'm all for safety rules and regulations and things of that nature, but to take this hardcore criminalize it approach is not just anti-freedom, it's also kind of dumb. So I think Bernie in this instance is just kind of a victim of the society and the culture that we've always lived in where it's been illegal for so long that it's just the default. Everybody thinks, I guess that's how it should be. But no, it really shouldn't be like that, Bernie, and I hope he evolves on this.
Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. Okay. Let's go to Tulsi. So Tulsi Gabbard is officially not going to be in the next debates. Um, And the way she was left out is incredibly questionable, to say the least. So she, according to the rules that have been laid out, she qualified. She qualified if you allow all the serious polls to count. But they don't allow all the serious polls to count. They arbitrarily discount certain ones and say they don't count. They don't matter. Why? Why? We don't know. The DNC has not specifically stated, hey, here's why we're leaving out this poll or that poll. The methodology could be sound. The company could be totally legit and respected. They still leave out many polls that should be allowed in the conversation. So it's incredibly weaselly and incredibly gross how they're leaving her out of the debate. Uh, And this is similar to what they did with Mike Gravel, how they switched it up at the last minute. So to be clear, Tulsi has hit the donor number and she has hit the polling number, but she hasn't hit the polling number according to their DNC approved polls. Really sketchy. So, um, in real clear politics here, Michael Tracy lays out the case um, and gives you all the specifics. He says the following. Gabbard has polled at 2% or more in two polls sponsored by the largest newspapers in two early primary states. But the DNC, through its mysteriously incoherent selection process, has determined that these surveys do not count toward her debate eligibility. Without these exclusions, Gabbard would have already qualified. She has polled at 2% or more in two polls officially deemed qualifying and surpassed the 130,000 donor threshold on August 2nd. While the latter metric would seem more indicative of grassroots support, a formerly obscure Hawaii congresswoman has managed to secure more than 160,000 individual contributions from all 50 states, according to the latest figures from her campaign. The DNC has declared that it will prioritize polling over donors. In polls with a sample size of just a few hundred people, this means excluding candidates based on what can literally amount to rounding errors. A poll that places a candidate at 1.4% could be considered non-qualifying, but a poll that places a candidate at 1.5% is considered qualifying. Pinning such massive decisions for the trajectory of a campaign on insignificant fractional differences seems wildly arbitrary. Take also Gabbard's performance in polls conducted by YouGov. One such poll, published July 21st, sponsored by CBS, placed Gabbard at 2% in New Hampshire and therefore counts towards her qualifying total. But Gabbard has polled at 2% or more in five additional YouGov polls, except those polls are sponsored by The Economist, not CBS. Needless to say, The Economist is not a, quote, sponsoring organization per the whims of the DNC. It may be one of the most vaunted news organizations in the world, and YouGov may be a qualified polling firm in other contexts, but the DNC has chosen to exclude The Economist results for reasons that appear less and less defensible. So uh, he also goes on to make another good point where he says the candidates are campaigning specifically in a limited number of states at the moment, namely Iowa and New Hampshire, the top two on the list that they're campaigning uh, at for obvious reasons, because that's where the you know, early voting occurs. Um, so the fact that she's spending all of her time there and she's campaigning there and she has the necessary support to get into the next debate there, but that doesn't count. Because, oh, it only, only the national polls count, or some polls in the early states count, but you've got to go back more than six weeks ago in order to find one that counts. 
Um, and even according if you just use the national poll standard, she qualifies if you use all the polls, but they don't use all the polls. They cherry pick and say, oh, this one's DNC approved, this one's not DNC approved. And, oh, would you look at that? It turns out Tulsi Gabbard's not allowed on the debate stage. Sorry, you didn't make it. You didn't make it according to the rules. Yeah, but what if the rules are dumb? Why are you not counting certain polls, which should obviously count, whether it's polls specifically in New Hampshire or elsewhere in early states, or whether it's national polls that you just dismiss? Come on, man, it makes no sense. Even if you're somebody who doesn't like Tulsi Gabbard, you can admit this makes absolutely no sense, and this shouldn't be the case. The idea, like some of the candidates who made the debate stage, I don't have the list in front of me, but there is zero doubt that a lot of the candidates who made it don't have the same grassroots support that she does. We also know, for the record, um, and you guys know this because I reported on it previously, she was the most Googled candidate in after both of her debates. Most Googled candidate. And she's also one of the highest in terms of Twitter followers gained. Which does, you know, that does show you that there's plenty of grassroots support. It does show you that. You know, again, like her, dislike her, these are, these are metrics that are obviously not used, but it seems to me like they're equally as good as the metrics that they are using, only certain DNC-approved polls, other ones ignored, you know, certain national polls, other ones ignored. She has a very loyal following online, and that does count for something. That does mean something. It's not like you could totally write them off. I know that in mainstream media, all they do is shit on her 24-7, but... Um, that's irrelevant. Those are overpaid hacks. <laughs> and they ask her the same question over and over and over, and it's equally stupid every time. So to, to leave her out seems incredibly arbitrary, incredibly silly. There are some candidates who made the debate stage who are just, they don't have remote, anywhere near the support that she has. So this is kind of a hack job here. In the same way that they excluded Gravel by switching up the rules at the last second and prioritizing one thing over another thing, that's kind of what they're doing with Tulsi here. And um, bottom line is, I'm not against the idea of using polling, you know, to try to determine who's allowed on the stage, and then you do have to narrow the field as you go. I'm not against that. But if you're going to do that, just accept all reputable polling. That's not, that's not very hard standard, right? Like, just accept all reputable polling. That's it. But no, they've, they've, like, very, in a very narrow way, and they don't give you the specifics as to why they pick these polls, but they only pick certain polls. This one's DNC approved, this one's not. Really, what's your criteria for determining that? So that's not good, man. This is not good, um, and it's messed up, and... Even if you don't like Tulsi Gabbard, you have to fight for what's right because this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. Okay. Let me take a final break real quick. When I come back, I got one more on Tulsi. 
she went on um, podcast for Rolling Stone with Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi, and she did not hold back when it came to the Iraq War. You don't want to miss that. And then um, we also have Ben Shapiro talking about a poll of millennials, and it's just as uh, pathetic as you could probably imagine. It's not facts over feelings stuff. It's feelings over facts stuff. So stay right there. We'll talk about that and more.
All right, y'all. Okay. All right, let me give you this one more story here on Tulsi Gabbard, which uh, is honestly her at her best. And then we'll move on to uh, Mr. Ben Shapiro. And I have a story on Andrew Yang as well for you. So Tulsi Gabbard spoke to Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi on their new podcast for Rolling Stone. And um, she was maybe more outspoken here than ever on the issue of the Iraq war. You had really two, two experiences that were very striking. The exposure to the high number of American casualties, but also there was the mission itself, which didn't seem to really fit with the... I think what we found, I mean, like so many people, we were there uh, to serve our country and, and believing the lie that we were all told that, hey, we've got to go to Iraq and topple Saddam Hussein, this brutal dictator, because he's working with al-Qaeda and they've got weapons of mass destruction and they're going to use them to attack us. I mean, that's the mission and the mindset that we went there. Uh, believing, mm-hmm. like again, like so many politicians in Washington, so many people in the country, right. uh, only to really realize that we were we were lied to, uh, and that we were betrayed. This really wasn't about going after Al Qaeda. This wasn't about fulfilling that mission of protecting the American people at all. It was a regime change war that was launched under the guise of of national security under the guise of humanitarianism and look at all these atrocities that this brutal dictator has done to his own people uh, and done really for the benefit of of corporate interests uh, and oil. And that was something even while we were there uh, was very eye-opening to me coming from state government. You know, I left my re-election campaign and my my seat in the state house and going there and, and thinking about fiscal responsibility to taxpayers and seeing plastered all over our camp this big emblem of KBR Halliburton. Oh, God, yeah. mm-hmm. You saw it, I'm sure. Yeah, every outhouse. Was, yeah, exactly. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're from Hawaii. We have, like, very diverse, you know, we have people from across the Pacific, Filipino, Chinese, Vietnamese, all kinds of people in our unit. And we started making friends with the, the what were called the third country nationals that mm-hmm. were hired by KBR Halliburton to come and do things like clean the outhouses or cook the meals in the chow hall. And uh, so we'd start to make friends with them and talk with them and, you know, go outside behind the tent, start cooking rice and sharing food and uh, just start asking, hey, how much are you guys making? You know, how are you being treated? Oh, it was outrageous, it right? Was outrageous. Yeah, yeah. To see, I mean, hearing, oh, I get paid $500 a month, wow. a month to work 12-hour days, six, seven days a week. How often do you get home to see your family? maybe once a year, but probably every other year. Mm-hmm. And just knowing the billions, the billions of dollars these companies are making, and really to have this indentured servitude, it just it went to, well, this is the military-industrial complex. Yeah. that They're really the ones who are profiting. Damn. Damn. Um, so she's flat out saying it. The Iraq war was for oil. It was for corporate interests. And um, the people who benefited, it was the military-industrial complex. It was for the profits of the military-industrial complex. 
and that was a hard-hitting story, man. You know what it reminded me of? Um, I don't know how many of you guys have seen it. I think it was called Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. I highly, highly, highly recommend you take a look at that movie. Um, It's like a documentary. I think it's called Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. And it is absolutely eye-opening as to just how severe and deep the corruption went and how there were a small number of people at the top getting incredibly wealthy off of the wars and everybody else was suffering. It was, you know, the old Smedley Butler idea, war is a racket. You've never seen it laid out in more clear terms than you saw with Iraq for Sale, the War Profiteers. I mean, I forget, I I, honestly, I forget the specifics, so don't quote me on this, but like a a six-pack of Coke, the, the taxpayers were being billed some ridiculous amount of money for it, like $30 or $60 or something like that. So it, like the whole point was to rob taxpayers blind, loot the treasury, and people were getting rich off of it as, and what Tulsi laid out there is, as the people who were hired to work for KBR and Halliburton, these private contractors in Iraq, getting paid like $500 a month for working six days a week, 12-hour days, it's like she had a light bulb moment of like, whoa, whoa, why are we really here? We were told that Saddam Hussein worked with Osama bin Laden to do 9-11. Turns out that was total nonsense. Then we were told Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and the implication was he's going to use them on us. Not only was it not true that he wasn't going to use them on us, it's also not true that he had them. He didn't have them. And all the, throughout the entire time Saddam was doing his atrocities, we were supporting him massively. His atrocities against the Kurds, I mean, we were backing him at that point. So it's almost like she had this light bulb moment. And imagine having that light bulb moment when you're serving in the war. Oh. See, I had that light bulb moment from my couch. So it was potentially easier for me to digest because I'm not, I wasn't there. She was there. And she was having this light bulb moment of like, oh, my God, oh, my God. This is like for the profits of the military industrial complex. And this is deeply corrupt. And this is a war that, at least in part, is about the oil. Man, that's tough. I'm telling you guys, Iraq for sale, the war profiteers. If you go into that movie being like, you know, like a Wapley centrist or something, you'll come out a leftist. Because there's no way to explain away the deep, disturbing corruption at the heart of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. There's no way to explain away those no-bid contracts, billions and billions of dollars, and then, you know, shoddy wiring where some of our troops got electrocuted in the shower and died because KBR and Halbert and the people who were working for them weren't qualified to do it, but they wanted to hire people for cheap because they wanted to pad the bottom line and make more money. The list goes on and on of the devastating and damaging and incredibly scary things, man. So there you have it. It's very nice to now have politicians who are willing to say it, who are willing to say the military-industrial complex and are willing to say the Iraq wars for oil. Because for the longest time, even, you know, like Obama, he would say it was a mistake. The war was a mistake. There's a very big difference between a mistake and a war based on false pretenses 
for oil and for the profits of the military-industrial complex. Those are two very different things. And one of them was like the tepid disagreement with the war, where it's like, oh, a, a strategic error, a tactical mistake, versus like, no, 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 war's a racket, and this is for profits for the military-industrial complex and oil. So big difference between those two. And now the Overton window is shifting on foreign policy, and it's a great thing to see. So one of the main things that we like to talk about on this show is media bias, uh, because mainstream media is terrible. I mean, they're really, 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 really bad. I'm not just saying that. I mean, they have a bias towards sensationalism. They have an establishment bias. Uh, In some outlets, they have what's called a neutrality bias, where they try to pretend like both sides are equally crazy and equally right about stuff. It's kind of a lazy default position of the relatively apolitical, where they think the middle point between two claims is like always the most reasonable. So there's a variety of biases in our mainstream media. Um, But what you're about to see here is just such a clear example of an establishment bias. So uh, Scott Santins tweeted the following. We have decided that if Andrew Yang didn't exist, these would be the top six from the Quinnipiac poll. So despite Yang polling at 3% in this poll, there's no point in displaying him in the top six. So look at this screenshot. You have Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, okay? This is from a Quinnipiac poll. Uh, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke. They put Beto O'Rourke there as opposed to Andrew Yang, who's polling well above Beto O'Rourke. Andrew Yang's polling at 3%, but they put Beto there. Why? Why would you put Beto there? Why would you do that? That makes no sense. Why would you do that? Here's the answer. They have already declared he is a legitimate candidate. We tag him I don't care what your opinion is. I don't care what your perception is on who is and isn't a serious candidate. I care what the numbers are. So they leave off Andrew Yang because in their mind, it's like, oh, you remember when uh, Kamala said this about Tulsi? Ah, I'm a top-tier candidate. She, on the other hand, is not. This is that same kind of mindset. The mindset of, oh, please. Oh, please, Andrew and I, we'll be kind to you and maybe let you have, like, you know, some time to talk in a, in a debate, even though we'll probably lower your microphone at other points. But, uh, come on, you're just, you know, you're a sideshow. You're not a serious candidate. Who are you to determine that? I believe that is determined by the people. I believe that is determined by the polls. And when Andrew Yang is polling well above Bet on My Stork, well, then take Bet on My Stork off the damn screen. He doesn't belong there. He doesn't belong there at all. So this is is the thinking, man. The thinking is whatever the the assumptions in the Washington, D.C. elitist cocktail circuits are, that's what they're going to default to. And so they're defaulting to Andrew Yang is not serious. So take him off there even though he's polling above. And that's embarrassing. And by the way, just so you know, I don't even think they really know they're doing this. It's not like super nefarious where they're t- 
twirling their evil mustaches and go, yes, we're against him, yes. It's just the lazy default assumption where everybody in the room is going, Andrew Yang, okay, whatever. Oh, everybody knows Beto O'Rourke because we know Beto O'Rourke. So put him there. But either way, it's inexcusable. It's absolutely inexcusable. See, they even, now, of course, Bernie's in this poll because he's one of the top candidates, but this is the same kind of stuff that he went through in 2015 and 2016. You know, this is the same kind of stuff that Tulsi's going through right now, along with Andrew Yang. This is that same thing. And you still see it even to this day. We just covered a story earlier where Washington Post tried to fact-check Bernie and say, you said 500,000 people go bankrupt because of medical bills. Not exactly. Meanwhile, he's citing a study that the Washington Post themselves reported on. And if anything, he underestimated. He said 500,000 medical bankruptcies. The Washington Post said 530,000 medical bankruptcies. So they're going to, if you are not viewed as serious, if you are not viewed as part of the club, if you are not viewed as legit, they will ignore you. They'll smear you. They'll misinterpret things on purpose. They'll portray you in the worst possible light. And uh, they will try to, and this is the most annoying part, as they shape public opinion about stuff, they act like, who, us? No, we're just calling balls and strikes, bro. That's all we're doing. We're just telling you what's going on. We're just telling it like it is. No, you're not. You are trying to shape public opinion as you pretend like you're just describing public opinion. And that's insufferable. Because Andrew Yang is doing a hell of a lot better than a lot of shitty establishment candidates. And he deserves to be covered as such. And he deserves to have a serious look at maybe, hey, why is this guy polling better than all the other establishment candidates? Let's talk about that. Well, I don't know, maybe because he actually believes in something and he's fighting for it. Maybe that as opposed to a lot of these guys who are just on an ego trip, like bet on my stork, who could win a Senate seat. And he said, no, because my ego wants me to be president. Flailing arms better. Yeah. It's terrible. And it's really annoying. So it's not, isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? The three candidates who get the most shit from the media happen to be three of the most anti-establishment candidates. Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders. You can see the clear media bias against all of them. And it's not subtle. It's not like a little thing. This is obnoxious and big. The dude is polling above Beto, and you put Beto on screen. Because you know Beto, and you like Beto, and you've arbitrarily decided that he's serious to you, even though he's pretty unserious to the American people. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Little Mr. Ben Shapiro. So there was a poll of young people that Ben Shapiro went on Fox News to talk about. And um, I love this segment because Ben portrays himself as the facts over feelings guy. And what you're going to notice here is his entire commentary is his feelings over the facts. <laughs> so all he's going to do is just give you his opinion the entire time. 
Mr. Facts over feelings is like, here's my interpretation of these numbers. Let's take a look. Patriotism, a belief in God, and having children all rates far lower in importance than they did just 20 years ago. As you can see on that graphic, religion, for example, at 30%, it was at 67% uh, for people in the age range 55 to 91 when they did this 20 years ago. So when you look at this, you have to ask yourself, what do those numbers mean for the future of America? Because it could look very different. Joining me now, Ben Shapiro, editor-in-chief of dailywire.com and author of The Right Side of History. Ben, great to have you here tonight. Um, what do those numbers say to you? Well, they say a lot of the common social institutions and philosophies around which the country was formed and has continued to progress are dissolving. I mean, if, if you get rid of patriotism and innate belief that the country and the principles upon which was, it was founded are wonderful, you get rid of religion, which is the main social institution that has been upholding a free society for the last couple of hundred years here in the United States, and then you get rid of even a care for the future, meaning people don't care about parenting or having children as much. The question becomes, what exactly are the ties that are supposed to bind us together other than watching the Super Bowl once a year together? Yeah, good question. Let's break, it, break down each one of them. When you look at patriotism, what, what do you attribute the decline in that to? Well, I think there have been two stories about American history that have been told in America. One is that America was founded on eternally good, true, and wonderful principles. We've not always lived up to those principles, but the story of America is an attempt to fulfill those great principles and is essentially a story of triumph over both the odds and over our inner demons as well. That's story number one. Story number two is that America was rooted fundamentally in evil, slavery, sexism, racism, bigotry, homophobia, and that all of our institutions are ripe with these things. So why would you be patriotic about institutions that are so thoroughly corrupt? It seems like that latter narrative is winning the day these days, and that's what you're seeing with younger folks. So that's the Beto O'Rourke uh, campaign, it sounds like, that you just encapsulated. Um, let's talk about religion for a moment here. Because it seems to me, you know, I remember the, the me generation, which people thought was sort of a passing phase, but it seems to become a way of life now. And when me is at the center of everything, I don't think that you need to go out of yourself um, and ask, you know, God to save your soul or any, anything along those lines. So I don't see how you put that genie back in the bottle unless people are ultimately dissatisfied with that life. I think that's right. I mean, religion is about fulfilling duty to other people, fulfilling duty to God, but yeah. duties that lie beyond you. The same poll shows that a disproportionate, young, uh, a disproportionate share of younger people see self-fulfillment as a top goal. Well, those two are in direct conflict. Right. I think that people eventually are going to find that the hedonistic, self-fulfilling you know, attempt to please yourself, your subjective perceptions, is not going to be as fulfilling. They are going to look for something beyond themselves. In fact, I think they're hungry for that now. It's leading to a lot of depression and upset, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Let's put up that top value is considered most important that Ben was just referring to. Hard work is the only thing that continues to rate very high over the course of the years that they've been looking at this. Tolerance for others. We, we talk a lot in society about tolerance and the importance of being tolerant of other people's lifestyles and all of that. That's a very high value, um, particularly for young people. Is it, is it necessarily a value that you think is, is a virtue worth striving for? Well, I mean, I think that if by tolerating other people we mean tolerating people in a free society doing what they're doing so long as they don't hurt others, of course that's something we should be striving for. But I think young people don't actually mean that when they say tolerance. I don't think a lot of young folks mean I'm going to tolerate viewpoints I don't like. I think what they mean is that if you judge me in any way you're being intolerant, because I'm not judging you, except if you're judgmental, in which case I judge you and I'm intolerant. So it's a, tolerance itself is not a value. Tolerance is of a value. It's a strategy to use when you're talking about 
what exactly is acceptable right. behavior in a free society, and it seems that young people are espousing a strategy above an actual value. Yeah. Yeah, but you just made all that up. <laughs> None of that's based on the data. The data says that 80% value tolerance. And you put your like own massive spin on it, and you pretend like, I'm just telling it like it is, bro. No, you're not. That's just like your opinion, man. Uh, he's so obnoxious. All right, so let's go through this. Uh, by the way, at the beginning he talks about, um, oh, the decline in patriotism and why that's a bad thing. And he defines it himself. He uses the word in innate belief that basically your country is, you know, is wonderful. Innate belief. But that's just the thing. That is against rationality and reason. To, uh, it's an innate belief. Like, we're wonderful because we're us. Yes. Me. Guys, this is me. I live here. Therefore, this place is perfect. It's actually like a really childish belief, this idea because you, Ben Shapiro, happened to be born on this random patch of dirt, that this random patch of dirt, I have an innate belief that our country is wonderful. Okay, but let's actually look at the history, let's look at the evidence, let's look at the data, and by the way, are there things about this country that are wonderful? Yes, absolutely! But are there also things that are bad? Yes, absolutely. But he wants, like, he wants, he wants a black and white world when there's a lot of gray in this world. And that's why when he goes on to explain, like, oh, there's two stories that have been told. Really? There's only two stories that have been told about this country? That's it? There's not, like, I don't know, hundreds? <laughs> there's two stories. One of them is basically that America's good. That's the conservative vision. The, and then there's the other one, the lefty vision, that America's, America's bad. It's built on racism and misogyny and homophobia and blah, 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 blah. Or, or, and, and roll with me here for a second, Benny boy, or... America is both good and bad. America was founded on slavery. America did have Jim Crow and segregation. America did involve doing a genocide of Native Americans. America also helped beat the Nazis. America also did the New Deal. America also had the Civil Rights Movement. You know, the KKK is American as is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. They're both American. So there's both good and bad in the country. There are positive things and there are negative things. In our history, there's positive things and there's negative things. The idea that he, he finds it necessary to break it down is there's story one, which is America's good, and story two, which is America's bad. And it's that second story, which is catching on so much nowadays. No, it's the fact that people are actually being educated about what went on in this country and what continues to go on in this country, and then they're reacting accordingly that gets you upset, you want them to believe the mythology. You want them to believe we're uniquely good and we're special and American exceptionalism, yeah. At the same time, everybody agrees, like, oh, what do you mean? It's a good thing. Equality is a good thing. We all want to be equal. We all think that's a wonderful thing. Then in the next breath, they, they're like, but America is exceptional. What? Wait, are people, are people equal, or are, is America exceptional? Which is it? It's one or the other. You can't have both ways. So you, you have to pick. Um, and then he also says religion uh, upholds a free society. What, what are you basing that on? You're not basing that on anything. He would say, I'm basing that on, 
on hundreds of years of Judeo-Christian society flourishing. The Scandinavian countries are some of the most wildly successful countries, and they're massively non-religious. So, so much for your theory, it just fell apart. They kick, us, they kick our ass in virtually every measurable way, yet you just said religion, quote, upholds a free society. You know where religion is, like, most involved in politics? Saudi Arabia? Are they free society? See, he just says stuff. Like, he says, he argues off of his feelings, ironically, because he says he's Mr. Facts Over Feelings. Um, And then there's this other thing that has been going around in conservative circles for a long time now, this idea that we're just more narcissistic today. How do you figure? I mean, yes, we have outlets like Facebook and Instagram and social media that certainly feed into that and, and let people broadcast that to the world, but people are people. If somehow you had Facebook or Instagram or whatever developed in 1918, they would, it probably would have, people would have reacted the exact same way. People would have been using it the same way. There's an element of, of human beings that, yes, we are in part narcissistic and selfish, but there's also a part of us that believes in altruism and humanity and the collective good and community that exists in humans. The idea that we're like uniquely narcissistic today, that's just like this lazy point of view that people espouse when they don't like the younger generation. And they, they just, they want to make the older generation appear grandiose and the young generation be like, so stupid and self-obsessed and dumb. Sure, it was the older generations that crashed the economy and that sent us to illegal and offensive wars that we shouldn't have gone to, like the war in Iraq. But whatever, you guys are, like, selfish. You on your smartphone? Is that what you're doing? You're on your smartphone? It's so stupid. And then, um, finally, I submit to you, look at the actual numbers that were put on screen, and then think of the entire conversation Ben was having here, because Ben gives his opinion the entire time, but when they put the numbers on screen, what do you see? What do people care about? Self-fulfillment, 64%. Hard work, 89%. Tolerance, 80%. Community, 62%. So, in other words, the belief in both self-fulfillment and community is about the same. 64% for self-fulfillment, 62% for community. So what does that prove? Exactly what I just told you. We're both narcissistic and selfish, human beings are, and we also believe in altruism and humanity and the common good and, and, and the collective, the community. So we, we're both of those things. But he wants to only play up the self-fulfillment part, and ignore the community part. Ah, is it selfish, narcissistic, bad? And also, by the way, there is no further definition of self-fulfillment. When you ask somebody, do you believe in self-fulfillment, of course they're going to say, yeah, but what do they mean by that? Some people mean, I feel more fulfilled when I go and feed homeless people at the shelter. So self-fulfillment is being interpreted in a purely narcissistic way, but it's not. It's not necessarily purely narcissistic. So again, All he does is put his own spin on it and ignore the reality of it because what did they not focus on at all? The whole idea of this younger generation that they try to perpetuate is uh, they're lazy, they're selfish, they got all these problems, they don't care about serious things like the older generation cared about. Meanwhile, 89% believe in hard work. Weird. Doesn't fit the narrative of like the lazy millennial. Now does it, Ben? So they just ignore it. Eh, don't talk about that bar because that's inconvenient for the narrative that we're trying to push. And even when, when he started babbling incoherently about tolerance, like, 
80% believe in tolerance. That means 80% believe in tolerance. Then he puts his own spin on it. Like, well, they don't mean actual tolerance of, like, tolerating me for when I make a shitty point. <laughs> the reason people dunk on you, Ben, is because you say dumb things. There's no... Tolerance doesn't play into that equation. When people try to fact-check your ass, they're fact-checking your ass because you're wrong. They, they can be tolerant of you existing in society and doing whatever you want to do and pushing your propaganda on a daily basis, but that doesn't mean they're not going to fact-check you. So he just tries to twist definitions to fit his own whatever. I don't even know why I'm wasting my time with this. He's a joke, and that's crystal clear. All right, y'all. We done, bitch. Love you guys. I will talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy your weekend. Oh, there might not be a show on Monday. I'm gonna, I'll tweet about it. I'm not sure yet, but there might not be a show on Monday. Um, so, yeah, just uh, plug into the Twitter account. Stay tuned because I'll let you know what the deal is. But anyway, love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.